Thank you, Kelsey. And um, Kelsey also has been invested in the life of our youngest. Um, Sam is part of the high school ministry for um, a number of years now. And uh, Paul and I are so grateful for this church. We've uh, just finished 10 years of Biola, um, just, uh, just this um, past summer. Um, and this, uh, this has been our home church. And uh, we're grateful for the investment that uh, this body has made uh, in our family, these wayfarers that came from New England uh, in 2007. And it's been wonderful for us, uh, so rich and assuring to be part of this community. So thank you. This is the, this is the week when, um, when the defibrillator hits Biola and everything comes back to life. We have over 1,200 new undergraduate students coming uh, in a couple of days, over 500 uh, graduate students. So we've got uh, quite a bit coming up in the next few days. Um, and uh, we're, we're grateful for the partnership, as Kelsey said, that we have with EV Free Fullerton and Biola University. And I know there's many members of the Biola community that are worshiping here. So um, it's, good, it's, good to, it's good to see you. Uh, it's, uh, it's a fill-in time for me for uh, Pastor Darren McWater. So uh, I'm going to um, spend a little bit of time in the Old Testament today, as he's been doing uh, in the book of Exodus. I'm going to go in some different books, uh, kind of reflection. I love the Old Testament, right? It's uh, such a, a, the stories are so rich. And, and we often think of the more uh, like heroic, dramatic stories of the Old Testament. When you have Samson, Delilah, and Noah in the Ark, and Joseph in his like, like multicolored robe, and you know, you know. Moses crossing the Red Sea, whatever it might be. But there are, if, if, if all of God's word is true, which it is, then um, we have to appreciate it in its entirety, not just in its part. So I'm going to take you to a couple of more obscure stories um, today in the Old Testament that ultimately, because the Old Testament and the New Testament work together to unveil God's great big epic plan for humanity and his redemptive purposes for the world, um, that these stories, as obscure and as often overlooked as they may seem, fit into the picture about God's grace and the hope that we have in heaven. So let's look at these two stories. The first is a part of David's life, and the second is a part of Nehemiah's life. So we're going to go there. Now, when you think about David, you, you, you naturally think, well, yeah, David, the, the slayer of Goliath, the, uh, the warrior, uh, the one who fought against uh, the, not just the Philistines, but the encroachments of, of Saul, um, the writer of the, the, the epic Psalms. I mean, there's just so much about David. And when you think about Nehemiah, you think of the diplomat, you think of the governor of, of, of Jerusalem, you think of the wall builder, the orator, the motivator of thousands. But there are dimensions to both of these leaders' lives, a king and a governor, that are often overlooked and hidden and obscured in Scripture that I think are some of the most important virtues um, of these two leaders that have application for us today. And it's not their oratory skills. It's not their political finesseness. It's not their ability to motivate teams of leaders. It's not their bravery or their warrior's heart. It's, it's, it's their hospitality. It's that they opened up their literal tables, their supper tables, their meals to those who needed to see some of God's grace. And the great thing about that is that we don't have any kings or governors that I know of in this room today, but we have those who can open up our tables and demonstrate the grace of God as we do that. I'm not sure if, um, if grace was said 
around either of these tables, the king's table or the governor's table, but grace was showed there. And I want to talk about that. And, 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 and you think about David at first. You remember far before David was king, there was another king named Saul. And Saul had it out with David. He had a beef with him. Saul was this like very insecure and uh, vindictive uh, a leader. He would... Um, lash out against David. He would hunt him down. He threw a spear at him. Um, he pursued him. He sent armies to capture him. And um, Saul like, like, like raged inside when he heard the, 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 the masses chant, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And this national leader who was so... Um, over time, driven more and more by his, his own ego and jealousy and insecurity and thirst for power, he created this wall, this wall between David and himself. David, this shepherd boy. And then you have, so you have this, this paranoid king that sets out to undo David and everything about him is fixated on destroying David. But God in his mercy preserves David. And then there comes a day when Saul is dethroned and David steps into power. And when David steps into power and there's a new dynasty in the palace, one would think in those days that at the least, David would would completely shun the former dynasty. And at the worst, David would completely wipe out the former dynasty. So if anyone should be afraid at this time, it was a young boy with a long name called Mephibosheth, um, and Mephibosheth is the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan. He's an orphan boy. He is the last one left in Saul's family, and the scriptures say he was also disabled. He was crippled. He was lame in both feet, and so this grandson, this boy being housed 100 miles away from Jerusalem in the custody of another family, probably feared for his life as the last one left because if anything David needed to do, it was wipe out any vestiges of his nemesis, King Saul. But that's not what happened. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 3, This is how David responds. And he says, is there no one still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Is there no one left in the house of Saul? Not to whom I should slay, but to whom I should show kindness. It's not what you expect from the new king. So David sends out his servants and they travel 100 miles to the eastern side of the Jordan River and they find this lone descendant of Saul, this crippled boy named Mephibosheth, and they bring him back into the palace, into the courts of the king, and I'm sure this frightened boy had no idea what to expect. All he knows is the king wants to see you. And so as they bring him in, I don't know if they carried him in, I don't know if he came in on crutches, I don't know if he limped in, but this, this boy, lame in both feet, stood there crookedly before the king, and waited for his fate to be pronounced. And this is what the most powerful man in the land said to this grandson of the king who wanted to kill him. Verse seven, don't be afraid, Mephibosheth, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you 
all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And this young boy with crippled feet bows down before the king, I'm sure stunned and astonished at the words that he has heard. And he says, "Um, what are you, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And then David says it again, Mephibosheth will always eat at my table. And verse 11 reads, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's own sons. David not only treated him as a guest, he treated this lame, crippled, orphan boy, the grandson of the one who wanted to kill him, as if he was one of his own boys. And it wasn't just a meal for a few days. It wasn't just a meal for a few years. Fast forward to the end of the story, and it says as, as, as Mephibosheth grew up, then he got older and had his own families. Those meals didn't stop because it says in verse 13, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. The contrast is powerful, isn't it? It gives me goosebumps to like hear this story. This powerful king who had every right to open up his table to the prestigious, to the elite, to the influential, to the powerful, and only have dinner with them, his close friends, his allies, and his family. Instead, he does the unexpected, and he opens up his table for the grandson of his enemy, for the crippled orphan boy, who the scriptures say was lame in both feet. Hospitality, unexpected, living out grace when you don't see it coming. This is what David does around his table as a king, but it's also what Nehemiah did around his table. He was the governor of Jerusalem, and you know the story. Nehemiah had been for his whole life out there in the citadels of Susa in Babylon, and he worked his way up to a very prestigious position in Artaxerxes' courts as the, as the cupbearer to the king. Basically, is the, the the number one advisor, many might say, and called by God, he leaves the beauty of the citadel to the ruins of Jerusalem. And he comes into that city and he tells people it's time to rebuild the wall. Not only were the walls lying in ruins, but the people of God were despondent, they were depressed, they were demoralized. And there came a time when he finally got them motivated to build the walls. And, and, and this is what they did. The farmers started building the walls. And the merchants started building the walls. And the priests started building the walls. And when they were building the walls, they had to stop doing the other things that they were doing. And they didn't have like unemployment insurance, right? So when they weren't doing their day jobs, they were working for no pay as volunteers on that wall. And I know we do that here at EV Free. We love Fullerton. We set aside a day to serve this city, which is a wonderful thing that we're going to keep on doing. But this was like love Jerusalem. And it was day after day, month after month, that these workers were receiving no pay. And after a while, and mind you, there was a famine in the land, they began to fall on hard financial times. And they began mortgaging their fields, their vineyards, their houses. Some were even so desperate that they temporarily sold their children into slavery so that they have enough money to be able to eat. And in the midst of all this, what does the governor do? Listen to the story, tucked away there in chapter five, the hidden part 
of Nehemiah. It said Nehemiah in verse 17 and 18, it opened up his table. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came from the surrounding nations. It was an international affair, right? It wasn't just the city folks. He invited like a wide group. And each day, one ox, six choice sheep, some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine. They, they were in moderation. Every 10 days, got the wine, right? Food every day. And then he says, in spite of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on the people. In other words, he had food set aside for him. He had reserves of like exquisite food that he and the elite leaders of Jerusalem could eat, but he never set that aside for the leaders and for himself. He opened up his table. And I I guess there are probably almost 200 there, 150 Jews and nobles, ordinary common folks, folks from other nations, his own team, and they gathered around the table. And it was no small spread, right? Ox, sheep, poultry, abundant supplies of wine. They They would gather around the table. And this went on for month after month after month while these people were in financial despair. Nehemiah said, come and put your legs to my table and you eat here. For when you do... I'm serving you like God has served me. I'm honoring you like God has honored me. I'm gracing you like God has graced me. And those people came and the food was abundant. And the reason why he did it is because the demands were so heavy on the people. Nehemiah, like David, had every right to have at least some peace and quiet around his table. To eat with just the select few, the prestigious, the elite, the powerful, the influential, the wealthy, but he didn't. They opened up their tables for the foe, the frightened, the feeble, the forgotten. And they did this, though they didn't have to. But they did this because they were paying forward the grace that God had showed to them. The Hebrew word has said, it's hard to explain. It's not just grace. It's not just loving kindness. The best way I can say it is it's like it's out of this box, relentless, unconditional, sacrificial, gushingly ge- generous, God-graced, others-exalting hospitality. This is what Nehemiah is giving to the people. This is what David decided, though he didn't have to, which showed to the cri- crippled orphan boy named Mephibosheth. So David and Nehemiah died, by the way. Um, we assume they did by now. Um, and I imagine, though I can't quote me on this, um, this is a marginal reading in scripture, but I, I imagine that when they got to heaven, I don't know, but, but, but David might have said, when he entered into the pearly gates and God was standing before them, and God said, welcome to my presence. And David said, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And David said, thank you. I know like the, the Goliath thing, God, wasn't that awesome? One stone took the giant down. Those Psalms, people are going to read those Psalms for a long time. They're probably going to be in a Bible one day. Um, those Psalms are like amazing. And, and, and what about like the Philistines, the battle of the Philistines that I was engaging in and, and fighting against Saul's army and, 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 and the, the, the palace that, that I lived in and the extravagant like service that I gave to the, the, the city and to the nation of Israel. And God said, no, wait a minute. You know, what I remember was, was that, that boy, Saul's grandson, who really couldn't walk, had these palsied feet, and you didn't have to, but you sought him out. And rather than destroying him, you welcomed him. 
And you didn't just welcome him, but you put him at your table, at your table. You treated him like one of your sons. Day after day, month after month, year after year, you fed him. I imagine that's what God remembers. Nehemiah, the same way, comes into the presence of God, and God says, welcome to my presence. And Nehemiah said, those walls, they were amazing. I protected your city, the city of Jerusalem, and those gates, they were on these hinges. They could just open and shut. They didn't squeak. They were perfectly aligned. And, and the crowds of people that I motivated and the singing and dancing and celebration at the end and the motivation to stimulate these people towards good works, what about, and God says, wait a second, Nehemiah, Remember when there was a famine in the land? Remember when people were hungry and mortgaging their fields, their vineyards, their houses, some even putting their children temporarily into slavery? And you said, come on, come over to my supper table. I'm opening the place for you. I have to imagine that what God remembers is not necessarily what we think he does. This is how Jesus put it in Matthew 25, when you provide a meal, for those who are hungry, even if you don't realize it, it's as if you're doing this to me. I've seen recently in my own life how um, hospitality can make a difference. It was interesting, a year ago I was speaking here at EV Free, and it was during that time that we were in the midst of this big legislative um, tension over Senate Bill 1146. Talked about it here. Many of you are following the issues of religious freedom on faith-based colleges and universities in California. Know that the, the threat of this bill was, was pretty significant uh, for us coming out of Sacramento. It's funny, last service I called it Hackramento by accident. Um, and I meant Sacramento. Um, I'd never said that before. So, um, But I, and, and, and there's this bill when I was talking here a year ago, a few weeks after I shared with you a little bit about it and how we're trying to deal with this with the right attitude, um, prayerfully, cautiously, biblically, um, in terms of our own understanding of what our rights are as faith-based colleges and universities. That a few weeks after that, the bill actually passed. Um, at the last minute, some of the teeth were pulled out of the bill. It was passed, signed into law at the end of September by Governor Brown. Um, but the tensions were still there. Uh, on, on both sides, a lot of nervousness on the side of colleges and a lot of promises from the side of legislators that you haven't seen the last of us. And the distrust continued on both sides. We assumed that more and harsher bills were still to come. And then something interesting happened. And I got a call from a, a friend of mine who said, I have a few friends up in Sacramento and I'd like for you to meet one of them. And the name that he gave me was the name of the person I had known about for a long time who had actually written another bill similar to that bill that was equally as, as um, onerous. Um, and uh, I viewed this person as, well, that's kind of like this person I don't want to see. And he said, I'd like for you to meet with him. Um, and so I agreed to meet with him. He chairs the California Gay Caucus. He um, is a very outspoken, harsh critic. He had been for a long time of faith-based colleges in universities. And we met in Sacramento. We met in his office. And he welcomed me in and we had a conversation for about 30 minutes. I said, would you ever come to Biola? And he said, I will. And so on November 2nd of last year, he came and um, nervously by his own admission. And he met with some students, met with some faculty, met with some staff. And then this mutual friend who's a dear Christian brother up in Pasadena invited us for dinner. So he and I, the assembly member and I, went up to Pasadena and we sat there for four hours over this 
dinner and four hours we talked to getting to know each other. For four hours, we heard each other's stories. For four hours, we found some areas that we agreed on, not just the obvious areas where we didn't. And he and I have been together numerous times since then. We've had more meals together. A few months ago, this assembly member and I co-wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post titled, We First Battled Over LGBT and Religious Rights. Here's how we became unlikely friends. In the article we wrote, sometimes breaking bread begins to break barriers. Sure, there are differences and some deep differences between us. But we had to come to a point where bridges of understanding could begin to be built. And I don't know where that's going to take us. I'm going to be with him again next week. I don't know where these conversations are going to go. I don't know where they're going to go for legislation. I don't know where they're going to go for the gospel. I don't know what the end of this is going to be. Um, But this I do know. If you follow what Jesus says, this is how he calls us to live. So the future is a little bit uncertain on this. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. My father's a preacher. I work at a nonprofit organization. So it's like how this plays out, like that was my old boss's line I swiped from him. But how this plays out, I'm, I'm not so sure. But this thing I am sure about. And that is we are called to model a Christ-like witness through hospitality with those who are unlikely dinner guests. David did it. Nehemiah did it. I got to do it. I talk to students a lot about this whole idea of firm center and soft edges. By firm center, I mean this deep understanding of the gospel, this deep understanding of biblical truth, these deep convictions that are forged on the anvil of, 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 of thoughtful theology and what God's word says, and we need to be people of firm centers. But I also say we've got to begin with soft edges, those soft edges of kindness, of winsomeness, of gracious conversation, of listening, and of hospitality. Jesus came full of grace and full of truth, right? That full of truth, not half of each. That truth is a firm center. That grace is a soft edge. And we need to live that out in profound ways. Enemies and strangers and the anxious and the suffering, they can all actually experience our grace around a dinner table. And sometimes I think grace is said before a meal because grace happens there. The biblical imagery of the meal is just like this gracious bestowal of food on those who don't always deserve it. And so then when we invite to our own tables those who may need some encouragement or those who are unlike us politically or socially or religiously or ethnically or culturally or those who are rarely welcomed as guests anywhere at all, when we do this, we are living the gospel. So what David did to Mephibosheth and what Nehemiah did to the discouraged people of Jerusalem was more than giving them a handout. They were mirroring the grace of God over a meal. So Paul and I and the family, we live in, in downtown Fullerton, about a mile and a half from here. And some time ago, I was out for an early morning run and running down the sidewalk of Harbor, heading south. I noticed up in front of me, quite a bit in front of me, there were two guys walking towards me. 
One with long hair past his shoulders and an untucked flannel shirt and jeans. The other one, shorter guy standing next to him carrying a paper bag. And we have transient people in Fullerton. I thought it's probably best for me because I don't run with money. I'm just going to keep my head down and run right by them like a good Pharisee would, right? So, um, <laughs> so as I ran by them with my head down trying to keep my pace, I heard the taller, long-haired flannel shirt guy say, hey, Barry, surprise me. And I looked up and it was one of our philosophy professors at Biola. <laughs> now we have some faculty in the room today. We pay okay. And maybe not, not as much as people would want, but, but I'm just going like, dude, what are you doing here? Um, you don't even live in Fullerton um, this time of day. And he was kind of avoiding the subject. And, and eventually I pressed him and he said, okay, here's the deal. This is my friend Dave and I, this is what we do every once in a while. We go to McDonald's there on Harbor and Malvern, wherever it is, and we buy a bag full of Egg McMuffins, and we walk around the downtown area, and we find homeless people, and we breakfast with them. Not that we give them Egg McMuffins, but we sit down, and we eat with them. Here's a remarkable academic, award-winning author, commands a great audience in the classroom, a brilliant thinker who gets up early in the morning when no one's looking, and in that incarnational Jesus way, goes and buys a bag full of Egg McMuffins, and they sit down and they break bread together to those who need to experience the grace of God. I can't help but think of that story in what Jesus says in Revelation 3. He says, behold, I stand in the door and knock. This is written to the church at Laodicea. So this is written to believers. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I'm gonna suffer with you. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're from. Jesus says, I wanna suffer with you, so let me in. And that same kind of unconditional grace needs to appear in the acts of our own lives, often around a dinner table. See, see, Jesus saying, if you let me in, I'll come and supper with you. And when we do live that way, we're living that way for the lost and the lonely and the least. When we live that way, we're opening up ourselves to hospitality to even those we don't know that well. Hebrews 13, don't forget to show hospitalities to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. When Paul writes to Timothy, he's laying out what are the uh, conditions of an elder, a leader, an overseer in the church. One of the characteristics of an elder, he says, is hospitality. And we need to live that hospitable life, not just if you're an elder of a church and not just if you're a leader of a church, not just if you're an administrator at a university. Like no one is off the hook. Not those who have anonymous jobs, not a president of a university, an elder at a church, not the king of Israel, not the governor of Jerusalem. We live this way because God has, has, has transformed us by his own grace. And hospitality that we show to others is, is paying God's grace forward. And when we are that way to others, we are that way because God was that way to us, lavishing his grace on us when we needed it most, when we deserved it least. Psalm 23 says that, that God prepares a table for you. 
in the presence of your enemies. In other words, Lord, when I am surrounded by opposition, you still lavish your grace on me. God is in the business of lavishing grace on those who need it most and deserve it least. There's a wonderful Danish book and became a movie called Babette's Feast. Many of you have maybe read that. It's a story of a refugee woman who came from France, moved to this small village in Denmark to work as a cook and a housekeeper. She soon discovered that there are people living in that village with long festering divisions and distrust towards each other. And by luck, one day she realized that she had received unexpectedly 10,000 francs. And she receives these 10,000 francs and decides another than, other than, rather than living on her own, which she could do, she's going to spend all of that money on a meal. And as the people of that village began to feast from Babette's table, a funny thing happened. The grace of that meal began to show up in their reconciliation with each other. And the distrust and the suspicions began to dissolve over that generous meal. And Babette decides, I'm going to spend all I have on this lavish meal in order to bring these people together. And this is what happened. And I don't know if the author of Babette's Feast had this in mind when the book was written, but this is what God does for us. His grace is way more than we deserve. And we need to simply receive that grace with gratitude. I don't know if, if, you, if you haven't received God's forgiving grace, then now may be the day that you say, Lord, I want to receive that grace. And we actually have people over here and over here who will pray with you after the service. For in that sense, we are all the outcast Mephibosheths, right? We are all the weary at Nehemiah's table. And both of these stories cannot help but point us towards the cross, which is the most hospitable act in human history. And we often think of the cross as cruel and rugged and dark and bloody, but the cross is ultimately and eternally the place of God's, God's grace's most profound moment. It's the place where my sins were wiped clean by the death of Christ. And of course, the cross was preceded by a meal, right? Jesus gathered his followers together and he had a piece of bread and he had a cup and he said, you know, when you break this bread and you eat it, when you take this cup and you drink it, what you're doing is you're remembering through this meal my grace and it's the supper that we still take part in as a body of Christ around the world today. It's been happening for 2,000 years and I can't help but think that when we think about that meal, we have to think about our own tables, literal tables, as simple or as elegant as they may be. And who are those who need grace? How are we reflecting the grace of God towards us and extending it to others? Paul and I were on the AGNC um, just a few months ago, and there we visited the island of Patmos. Patmos is the place where John had the revelation. It was a profoundly moving day uh, for us and the 55 friends of Biola who were there. 
But as I think today about that island, I think about that revelation John had. And when he had that revelation, he envisioned this supper of all suppers. In Revelation 19, it said, blessed are those who are invited to the great supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. In other words, if you take God's word seriously, one day there is going to be this epic meal. And in that meal, every tongue and every tribe and every nation will gather around that table. And I don't think we're going to be sitting by language groups. I don't think we're going to be sitting by national origin. I don't think we're going to be sitting by cultural categories. So if it's true that we have this great banquet in heaven, and if it's true that this celestial supper for the redeemed includes people from every tongue and tribe and nation, then the only conclusion that I can draw from that is that supper will be one colorful, multi-ethnic, diverse, rich, global spread of the nations. And so let's reverse engineer that to our tables today. And consider how we can have our tables now look like heaven's table then, even introducing others to God's grace who may not know it. There's one thing that I believe Christians need to do today more than ever. It's to open up our tables. More than ever, we are in a culture of divisiveness and anger. More than ever, when national tensions are running high. More than ever, when politics in Washington are more interested in blaming than in collaborating. More than ever, with even the viciousness of racism that was evident this week on display in Charlottesville. Christians must lead the way in setting the Jesus example that instead of shouting across a street, we need to be talking across a table. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gets this to us. He says in there in Matthew chapter five, he said, you have heard that you are to love your neighbor, but I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And he uses two verbs there, love and pray. And he doesn't use them as one or the other. He fuses them together. In other words, we need to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But the sad reality is sometimes Christians do one or the other so that our prayer is loveless or our love is prayerless. And so when we love our enemies without praying for them, we might have relationship, but we don't Pray to bring the gospel to bear on those individuals that their lives and hearts must be changed. And this is prayerless love. Or when we pray, God changes the hearts of our enemies while keeping them at such a distance that we have no proximity or no relationship. This is loveless prayer. You love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You don't get to pick which verb. So when God gave Abraham the covenant, in Genesis 12, he said, all people on this earth will be blessed through you. And the expectation remains from the beginning of God's word that we, the people of God, are to be a blessing to the nations, all nations, all cultures, all people, all generations. And one of the ways we bless the nations is when our dinner table includes those outside of our family and friends. When our dinner tables includes those, includes those who may not dress like us or look like us or worship like us or believe like us or vote like us or sound like us. And I don't know, that meal could be with a colleague who comes from across the ocean. 
It could be with a widow who comes from across the street. It could be from the, with a family that comes from across the tracks. How have we given people who are alone or ignored or see the world differently, sometimes much differently, a chance to savor a meal with us? How have we interrupted the routine of our days to mirror this attribute of God, this loving kindness, this God who prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies and how we need to move that forward? And when you do that, it doesn't have to be Babette's feast. It can be takeout. It can be from your grandmother's recipe. It can be grilled on the hibachi in the backyard. But let grace show up at your table as an extension of of God's grace served to you. And think about those who are having a hard time on the journey. Or think about those that you have been quick to judge. And invite them to your table. And just tell stories. Just ask questions. This is the way Jesus was with others, storytelling, question, asking. And as you do, just let the Holy Spirit begin to clank around that conversation and see what comes. And we can all do that, as simple or as elegant as our tables may be. For as more and more followers of Jesus make their kitchens or their dining rooms or their back patios places where their tables become tables of grace, and honesty, and vulnerability, and forgiveness, we are following the example of Jesus. And in this world increasingly skeptical of Christians and stereotyping us from a distance, we have to put on our menus the Jesus way of proximity, the Jesus way of relationship. And that calls us to a more winsome and savvy and mouth-watering articulation of the gospel and the path to show Christ to those who don't know him, or to those who need a helping of his grace that they've never had before, sometimes begins over supper. So may the literal tables of our home, as humble as they may be and as humble as the food on them may be, point others toward the love of Christ and toward that final great supper table under which all of the redeemed will place their feet. Father, thank you for your word. Provoke us, convict us, assure us, strengthen us that as we have been recipients of your grace, may we go likewise and share that grace with others. In Jesus' name, amen.